Welcome to Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. Join our host, Jacob Koenig, a partner at Woodbridge International, as he gives you the knowledge to navigate complexities, embrace strategic shifts, and prepare you to sell your business with no regrets. At Woodbridge, we know how to give you the wisdom to achieve your ultimate success. And now, here's your host, Jacob Koenig. All right, welcome to the show. Today, we are joined by Daniel Novella. He is the founder and CEO of Novella Law. He has over 25 years of experience in the area of mergers and acquisitions and transactional law. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Miami with a focus on M&A. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us here today. Pleasure to be here. So um, to start things off, uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear a bit about Novella Law's mission for for high net worth clients globally and and simplifying of uh, of complex legal issues. Yeah, thanks. So it's been a bit of a, a journey, I would say, to where I am now in my law practice. But what's been kind of interesting and fairly unique is the way we target the high net worth and ultra high net worth clients. I started out initially as a corporate lawyer working for a big New York firm, and I set up the firm like uh, twenty years ago. Up the window. And the focus has always been transactional so litigation. But what we found over the years is that, you know, the the high network client had other needs. And if we could handle that internally from a transactional standpoint, that would be better for them. It's, it's really approaching things from a problem-solving standpoint. So we've kind of grown from there. Corporate and real estate are the very common areas of practice that you find here in South Florida. Not so common is the fact that we are really Miami art lawyer and art law firm, so handling significant art transactions really globally. And in addition to that, we also handle aviation deals and maritime deals. Now, typically, again, it's targeted, like I say, to the to the high net worth client. And I like to say, we're really just helping our clients move assets. So when we're talking about art, it's typically for collectors, could be their monetizing, could be negotiating their option out. But usually, again, working on the movement of a significant asset, if it's uh, maritime, it's typically pleasure yachts, and if it's aviation, again, it's probably uh, private aircraft for personal use. So, again, it's all tailored to what has become our client, which is wealthy individual family offices, uh, both domestic and in Latin America. Understood. And so how do those law areas complement one another? Well, you know, that's the thing, because a lot of times people will say, wow, that seems like you, you're in a lot of different areas, but it, um, it's not, because I, don't, I, I do believe in specialization, and I don't believe in trying to be a jack of all trades. So really, we're very narrowly tailored in the movement of significant assets for wealthy individuals and families. That, that's really at, at its core what the practice is about. So a lot of times with, with uh, these people are entrepreneurs or their families that have wealth and they have businesses, so it, it, that's the corporate side of it, and that involves M&A, which I mean, we were talking about, that's one of the focuses that I, when I teach at the University of Miami Law School. But it's also capital raising, private placement, and then when they're looking to capital raise, a lot of times we're collateralizing assets, and those assets can be a business, and a business asset, but it can also be an art collection. It mm-hmm. could be, and it could be other personal assets that they have. It could be a yacht, it could be a plane. You can, you, we, we collateralize all of those. Uh, and they all have their nuances. They're all different assets. They're different ways of doing that. But yeah. same thing, if we're gonna, if they're gonna sell one of these, a lot of times it's for something else. You know, they may be selling art because they want to buy a business, or they may be collateralizing the art because they want to buy a business, or they may be selling real estate because they want to buy more art or whatever, but they all kind of tie in together. 
And that's the little ecosystem that we work in. And in addition to that, we also help funding sites and help set up funds uh, of the metrics and also here. But that's the practice. Um, really, net, and, 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 and like I say, it, it may sound broad, but it's actually very narrow and tailored to that one specific sort of client. And really, everything else, we, we, we find you know, expertise where we need it. If we're doing an acquisition, for instance, like we're right now working on an M&A deal based in the state of Washington, the, the 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 client is a fund based in 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 Los Angeles. We're going to have labor law issues. We're going to have IT issues. All of that. We're going to seek outside counsel on because those are not areas that we specialize. But we're going to handle you know the part that we know. Understood. And that's exciting. Certainly, uh, working with high net worth individuals and, and entrepreneurs, business owners. Um, you know, what do you find to be some of the the biggest challenges or or hurdles, or um, you know, what makes for a successful business exit in your experience? Well, if we're talking about like exit, like a, a sale of a business, but yeah, I I've kind of been a little bit more on the buy side over the years, uh, only because I have a few clients that are very active in the acquisition space. But I'm funny, I, I, I look at this, one of the things that I, I tell, and I tell this to my class and too, when I'm doing a purchase is there's the psychological point where the seller gets to when they're, when they think they want to sell and when they finally decide, okay, I'm going to sell. And particularly I'm going to sell to this, this particular client. That's a process. And in the space that I work in now, because, you know, when I, when I started practice at a big, I was at a big New York office, but I big New York law firm, but I was in the LA office. I was at Millbank. You know, there, you know, we were dealing with very large transactions, many, many lawyers. But in the space that I operate in now, for instance, on the M&A space, I'm typically 50 million and under. So the five to $50 million space, that's our sweet spot on M&A. And, you know, those are a lot of times are privately held companies that uh, you're dealing with the, with the founder or the founder's family. So there's this emotional connection to the business. And one of the things that I find is that that's a very emotional thing for them. Yeah. You know, they, so they have to get psychologically ready. And, you know, contrary to what we may see in the media about, you know, they make these business people seem very heartless. Most, in fact, almost every business person I've ever seen that built a business cares deeply about the business and the people that are in it. So they're very concerned about what's going to happen to their business and to those employees post-closing. So you, you want to get them that comfort. So I would say a successful one is where the seller can commit, you know, mentally, emotionally to the deal and when it's all over, walk away and they and feel that they did the right thing. Because if you do get sellers remorse, and um, there's nothing sadder than seeing a seller that absolutely feels they did the wrong thing post closing. And and a lot of times, I can think we're going to do a transition services agreement, and we're going to need that person to be there actively in the business, you know, to help us transfer over that that. And so you want that person to be engaged and, and be happy and feel that they did the right thing. So I, to me, I, I look at it, you know, there's the numbers. Obviously, the numbers got to work. It's got to be, that's, that's a given. But the emotional side of it's important, too. And sometimes people overlook that. So how do you advise your buy-side clients to uh, navigate those those tricky emotional waters? Well, you know, first of all, I, I'm very big on, I like my clients. So I, I really do believe that my clients are going to do the right thing. Not all people out there will. Um, so you have to choose who you want to work with. Um, but I, I sleep better at night knowing that I really like, genuinely like my client. But I'll tell you, it makes things easier because we've been in situations where we were bidding a deal and we're going against some private equity group or, or whatever. And, and they don't have the best reputation. And, you know, my client has a reputation that he's going to try to preserve as many jobs as possible. He's going to, he's looking to grow the business, not cut and burn, you know, 
these are things that sellers, especially founders, are going to look at. So we've won deals where we weren't the highest bid, but we had the best for the seller. So I think that's really important too. So I, I, my my feeling is, I, I'd say this is like we negotiate initially, and then once I see that the seller though is committed emotionally to the deal, then you can maybe do you come out later with some more post closing adjustments or whatever. Yeah, you can drill down on, but you know that the the key is to get there and uh, you know like i say it's rather and then the other part of it and i tell it to my students too sometimes the best deal is the one you walk away from i've had deals that just you know there was one problem after another after another but i'm like oh, that's it we're out yeah. and sometimes those deals come back and they're better deals and they're right. and that, than the one you were originally willing to commit to. so walking away is a good tactic too have you seen a, a trend recently where where there have been more uh, instances of, of deals falling apart during the sort of the banking crisis here, or has it been business? You know, you know what I've seen to be honest is at least in my practice is you know it used to be in the space that I operate in it was it was a lot of buyers that were just you know operators that wanted to buy and operate the business. And you know what I'm seeing is the funds and the private equity guys are going down market because you know there's better it's, there's less competition. Um, they used to focus more on the bigger deals, and I like going back. So I'm seeing more competition really on the smaller deals than I would have seen. Now I'm I'm looking back 20 years of practice. So if we're talking short term, you know, I'd yeah. say the last couple of years, you know, you know, things I things are starting to slow down with respect and I will see what happens. We're not in a full recession yet, but you know, things have definitely calmed down as far as you know, money's much more expensive and that's causing problems. It's gonna be a lot of the deals that I see that are that are not stock mergers, but you know, there's debt and there's mezzanine debt and you know, acquisition finance. That's getting more expensive. So that's changing game a little bit and uh I, I, it's definitely going to affect. But on the other hand, like I say, I see I see more competition in the space than there used to be too. So seeing how it's all flushed out. Yeah, I, I agree. In fact, we've seen in in the lower middle market space. Definitely, we have seen more bids on our clients than uh, than we've ever seen before. So we've been breaking yeah. in that regards and. And certainly when our clients and entrepreneurs, business owners are looking for that right partner, we like to also make sure that we're looking at all aspects of the of the deal, not just the price. As you said, that's usually the most important part, but it's it's yeah. not. And there is that legacy aspect, the the emotional points um, that business owners do need to uh, to feel uh, is right in order to to pull the trigger. So. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Big part of it. And how about with uh, international mergers and acquisitions? Is um, is most of your experience with inbound or outbound uh, global? Outbound? So that's that's a mix. And when and for me, you know, I'm in a bit of a unique place because I'm in Miami, Florida. I'm Cuban American. I speak Spanish fluently. So and and this market just has tremendous connections as you can imagine to Latin America and doing business in Latin America. More, I think, more inbound. And actually, one of the things that we specialize in is structuring that inbound event um, and figuring out what's the most advantageous way to do that. Sometimes with tax counsel, sometimes without. Uh, but we're pretty proficient at figuring out a good tax structure. Usually that involves some sort of offshore entity and a tax in a, in a jurisdiction that doesn't tax off, you know, foreign earnings. So the British Virgin Islands or Panama or something like that. Using that as a holding structure to then set a, a whole, you know, perhaps an entity in Florida, like an LLC, and using that as your investment vehicle uh, into the market. So that's a pretty that's a pretty typical structure that we would use. But I mean, it, again, it depends on, on what the transaction is. In some countries, a black work for instance, the eye. So if they're in, in, in a nation that looks very unfavorable to that, we'll use, a, we'll use a different structure. 
But at the end of the day, it's the same end game. We're looking for uh, uh, an, uh, an entity because unlike the United States, which taxes all your, your global earnings, most nations do not. So if you're someone in Latin America, for instance, has a U.S. investment, you won't be taxing your whole country on them. Some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's cool. So, so that's part of what we do. And then as far as countries that I see, you know, it, again, it, it changes with the wind. I'm seeing a lot of interest in Colombia now. There's been a new left-wing government, so people are getting more anxious about uh, the political situation there. So they're looking towards the Miami in particular. We're seeing a lot more inbound investment from Colombia. We're, Ecuador is also going through some trouble right now. I'm starting to see some more inbound from Ecuador. Brazil uh, appeared that you would have more. I ended up not seeing as much as I thought I would. But I mean, it, 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 we're in a kind of a unique place here in Miami where every time there's a crisis, to me, in Latin America, strangely, we benefit because we see more inbound investment. And then occasionally we see the outbound. When, when we do that, like we, we've done a few M&A deals in, in, in Brazil, we, we would work with uh, local council there, separate that through, and then using tax council too to make sure you know, we're using that makes sense. Tax council will usually be here, but really, local, and they're very sophisticated. I mean, people sometimes don't understand how these nations work but you know like Brazil I mean we're dealing with law firms that have hundreds of lawyers very sophisticated corporate accounts they can do any kind of deal it seems like there's more complexity sometimes when uh, when we're working with uh, an international uh, buyer is is that something that creates any uh, any headaches or something that generally um, can be smoothly worked out yeah and I mean I mean we had one deal where uh, it was it was a fintech company and but they had operations in Chile in Venezuela in Colombia we had some tax structure but you know every nation has completely different mechanism of how they handle you know it, and it's kind of archaic I would say you know it's, it, it, Latin America is based on the Napoleonic Code which is continental Europe not English common law which we're 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 used to so it's much more formal everything needs to be notarized um, which is quite expensive everything you know it's 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 just not you can't just sign like we do here docu-sign forget it you know so and in venezuela i mean i have to admit i was shocked i mean we were dealing with a big law firm there in venezuela but you know they have all their currency issues you know that it's getting better now but for a while to move money in and out of venezuela practically it was the nightmare and then on top of that i remember getting like stock ledgers and um, they're all handwritten i'm like what is this you know <laughs> i felt like i'd gone back in time you know but um no that's how they were doing things and invented well and and do you find that uh, a lot of the same issues and uh, challenges arise when uh, when doing m a and business law versus uh art or, or maritime transactions well art art is its own little animal um i'll tell you a funny little anecdotal story about art and so i find that you can have the same person and they have a business and they're selling a business and they can be very meticulous but very you know number numbers oriented and so on about the sale of a business which they've spent their entire life but then it comes to an art piece and all of a sudden you know i'm like dealing with some sort of prima donna it's like no i don't want to you know we got I, I had a deal once where we get to the finish line and they don't want to sell they don't want to close they're like no no you know we're, we're deals off but i'm like what do you mean i have money in escrow i can't deal can't be on we have a side agreement the money's there for you have to release possession of the painting we're gonna get sued you know finally he, he agrees but i mean it was that kind of thing where he like changed his mind but i've seen um I think that a certain art, uh, a certain asset, if they have an emotional attachment that perhaps a little different than other. And I see it in particular with art. So I think it's funny. It could be the same person, but with one, one particular asset, their approach to it is very, very different. So I find that, that kind of interesting. But generally speaking, you know, every, every asset has its nuances, you know, how you would record an interest in it. 
how you would, you know, collateralize it and so on. They all have their air, aircraft out there. You know, they have title all in Oklahoma because that's where the FAA offices are. Uh, with maritime, you know, you've got ship mortgages and so on that you would register with the Coast Guard. Art is kind of unregulated, wild, and still fail. So it, it, it's a bit of a weird world in, in that regard. Like the, the, these emotional sort of traps are, are more prevalent in, in the art world even than, than M&A. Yeah. And you get a lot of characters because it's such an unregulated industry. You get real cowboys in the art world, which you just wouldn't see so much in, in, in the other world, especially on the art dealer side, art players. So you get all kinds. But there's very sophisticated players in the, in the art world. Well, wow. people have made fortunes. Absolutely. And then we also deal occasionally with, with the auction house. Well, I have some great relationships with Phillips and other bees and so on. And they're very professional. Most of the time, your clients would be the the individual owners of the art, and yeah, it'd either be the family office, the individual, the family, and so on. Yeah, understood. Um, and getting maybe a little bit more more personal, I'm curious to hear how how your passions enrich your your life and your skills and your business. Well, you know, here's one that kind of ties into this whole thing, and that is, uh, I started a watch club years ago because I love watches. I, mean, I have a fascination with watches. Independent, I'm wearing here, Barton Brown. I um, so I started a club called Novella Watch Collectors Club, and we really are the premier watch club here in the Southeast, Florida. And um, it really is just something fun for me to do with like-minded people who care about these tiny little machines that are beautiful but functional at the same time. I mean, similarly, that I, I I like cars. I guess they're tight, and they, these are just smaller machines. But it, but what's been interesting about how it ties into my practice is that you know I've I've learned that people who collect watches typically have a business underlying business as well. So it's, it's been great for our firm, even though that wasn't really the reason why I got into watches initially. So we try to always do events. My law firm sponsors them, and uh, we do basically quarterly events with either one of the auction houses. We've done events with Phila. We've done events with other bees, or one of the one of the brands that I happen to love. In fact, where I have playing the next event I, today i was chatting with uh with a manufacturer about doing an event in october usually we take miami very cyclical i mean seasonal still so usually the summer people go away it's quite hot right now but we'll start up again usually in the fall and uh and like i said we try to do it quarterly not too much but that to me is something that that in sailing that's that's what i do uh when i'm not practicing law wonderful so you sometimes uh transact in in some boats that uh, that you end up using yourself or never i celebrated my birthday two years ago on my client's boat right before he sold it so yeah occasionally i do get occasional benefits out of uh he let me borrow the boat the day out of these deals that was actually an exciting deal too but uh basically a lot a lot of what we do on the maritime side it's for non-us clients so we have to figure out we we reached another deal where the greek client we were registering it in, in Gibraltar, but yeah. the boat was here in Miami. We had to ship it to Greece, do the registration, set up a Gibraltar entity. So all that kind of, kind of comes. And um, yeah, it's not too bad when your friends have, and your clients, my clients happen to be, mostly my friends also are uh, happen to have, you know, boats and art and uh, aircraft. These are all good, good circle to be in. Indeed. And so what's planned next for uh, Novella Law's growth and expansion? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I like being a small firm. I don't think we're going to change too much in that regard. But solidifying ourselves as, as the preeminent art law firm in South Florida is something that I've kind of set my sights on. I really believe that the art market here will continue to grow and grow. And um, it's an area that I really enjoy uh, and practice. And I'm one of those people who never plans to retire. 
So it's something I could see myself doing uh, until the end of my day. That, that's kind of where I'm at it. Funny enough, we were talking earlier about, you know, what when you see the buy side and sell side of these M&A deals, one of the reasons I decided years ago that I didn't want to retire, I saw too many people sell their businesses to retire and two years later, you know, they were really miserable. Um, and, and some of them weren't even with us anymore. And I'm convinced that that's part of it. And I said, you know what? Uh, this is what I love to do. And uh, I, have, I see no need to stop doing it ever. And we, we actually have seen the this year, we've gotten two clients on board who uh, are previous clients. So companies that have sold, serial entrepreneurs, you know, they just they yeah. can't themselves. So I see I same thing. I, I see people they sell a business, they go on the they buy a boat, they're on the boat for six months and they get bored. They're like, well this isn't really what I enjoy doing. I run the building. So yeah, for me, obviously I are teaching a big part of it. I love doing that hopefully as long as I can as well. It's a great way to, to spend time and give back. Like, like I didn't have to get into that in, in the first place. I always wanted but when I was in law school I did I did well in law school and so they, they basically drafted me to tutor students oh, excellent. and um at first i was you know not pleased that i had to do it but they were like all right dude. but then i realized i really enjoyed it but i remember right as i graduated law school i was already thinking someday i want to teach i really enjoy that but i didn't want to think what most law schools were which were all litigation focused when i graduated there was basically nothing for transactions so there's the classes that they had available for us each of the adults didn't match with my skill set at all yeah. but a friend of mine was teaching at the university and i remember saying you know i would love to do a transactional deal from start to finish you know loi all the way to closing and all the negotiating and demonstration costs and negotiating reference warranty all the stuff that I had no clue how to do when I graduated law school. And then a few years later, they said, you know what? They're gonna, they're thinking of doing this transactional skills program at the University of Miami, which would be interesting now, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I, I have to say, Professor Weldon, Dean Levy, and the other people there have done an excellent job. We've got a great group of adjuncts now, several of us that are teaching the course. And I'm really excited about the new semester. Now, this semester I'm teaching at an upper level. There's transactional skills once and transactional skills too. I'll be peaceful with the second one, which is getting more into more of the complex deal making. Yeah. And I'm really excited about it. They've, they've got a great program and I, I know other law schools are doing it. And I think, I think they should because, um, a lot of lawyers like myself are not going to be litigators. These lawyers, I, I've had some of the students come back and, you know, they, they can hit the ground running because they've been drafting. Yeah. Yeah. They've been drafting documents and agreements. Yeah. And they've also did much, much better and more useful than I was when I graduated. That I can assure you. Excellent. And what have you found that the University of Miami students have been, um, I don't know, struggling with the most? Or what is the most sort of difficult parts um, when you're when you're teaching transactional law? Yeah, it's interesting. Usually we start with something simple. Transactional so law, go out and drop like an NDA or something like yeah. that. And I notice a big difference there with people that have been in business. Maybe some people have already dropped a lot of NDAs. Some people have. But I'll tell you, as the, as the semester goes on, I don't see that as an advantage anymore. Those students that had that, I see it in the NDA, but I don't see it in the final contracts that we're drafting. The other students catch up very quickly. And I, I think the key thing is to, to want to learn. It's funny, I, I find the students who stay after class and ask questions are probably the ones that least need it. You know, it's kind of like the expecting the, the go-getters are the ones that are going to do the best just because they're so in, in, into doing everything that they have to do. So, I, you know, I, I, I would tell a student, you know, it doesn't really matter what your background is, or even if you haven't had a relationship business, if, if you develop that at all, committed, you do very well. Perfect. Well, that was all the questions that I had prepared for us today. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to speak about? Pleasure being here. And uh, if you guys make it ever out to Miami, 
<laughs> you love watches or sailing? Look me up. There we go. Perfect. So Daniel Novella, founder and CEO of Novella Law. Thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of Secrets to Selling Your Business, the podcast for entrepreneurs and business owners looking to unlock the secrets behind successful business transitions. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guest and their insights. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts.